The topic I wanted to talk about was today's plasma products. Uh, today's pla product, products that are made from plasma, plasma derivatives, that are used to treat hemophilia have a very good record of safety, but it doesn't happen by accident. It's a lot that goes into it, and that's what I want to talk about. And I'm just going to start with a quote. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. You've surely heard that before, um, but you'll see what I'm talking about. In the past, um, once there was something to treat people with hemophilia, it was fresh frozen plasma or cryoprecipitate. That came in in the mid-1960s. Prior to that, the only treatment for hemophilia bleeds into the joints was bed rest and ice. And other than that, there wasn't anything to give them. But cryoprecipitate was found to replace factor eight and very much helped in the management of bleeds. Um, few donors contributed to these products and almost all the recipients of them developed hepatitis. Um, however, it was considered just the cost of treatment. In other words, there's nothing we can do about it, but if you don't get replacement factor from cryoprecipitate, we know what the outcome is going to be. You're going to be laid up in bed for a couple of weeks. The early concentrates then were, um, were used and the same problems happened. The hepatitis was transmitted by the early concentrates. We didn't know nearly as much then as we know now. Many donors contributed to the products and nothing was done to reduce that risk. Um, we also learned that some of the hepatitis that was transmitted was not B, hepatitis B, not hepatitis uh, A, and now we know that it's called hepatitis C, but it was not known then and it wasn't able to be diagnosed then. Nevertheless, the replacement of their missing factor eight with fresh frozen plasma or cryoprecipitate dramatically changed life for people with hemophilia because they could be treated and be back at school in a couple of days. In the early 1980s, however, a new lethal disease was recognized, first called GRID, gay-related immunodeficiency disease, because it first showed up in the, in the gay population. However, quickly thereafter, it was discovered that people with hemophilia were also being affected. And people put two and two together and said, you know, this sounds a little bit like hepatitis B. It can be transmitted sexually and it can be transmitted by blood products. And it was discovered that this was a new apparent infectious agent that we had never seen before that we never knew about before and was different from other kinds of viruses that we knew of at the, at the time. In, the, in 1985, the HIV virus, the human immunodeficiency virus was discovered and shortly thereafter, tests were developed that would allow us to identify it. Well, that made a big difference. Plasma then could be qualified by testing it for hepatitis B and for, for HIV and excluded from being made into products to be given to other people. A European company made a factor eight concentrate and heat, heat treated it. That is, <clears throat> in solution, they uh, treated it, they called it pasteurization. It is very similar to the way milk is pasteurized. Um, 
and they f it was found to be safe from the transmission of both hepatitis B and HIV. That product is still on the market. It's still safe. It still has not transmitted uh, uh, a viral infection and n hasn't transmitted hepatitis C either. Aaron. Both, but in 1985, that was before the widespread use of the testing. So the pasteurization was the major thing that made the difference at the time. Uh, <clears throat> that product was brought to the United States and quickly made available. The HIV, uh, the uh, FDA uh, uh, approved it quickly because it was the only product available at the time that was known to be safe from transmitting HIV. So what did we learn from the past? What have we learned? The first quote I said was, if we don't learn from the past, we're condemned to repeat it. So we learned that products made from plasma can transmit infectious agents, including hepatitis B and HIV. We learned that specific steps in manufacturing can reduce this risk. In one case, it was pasteurization or heating in, in liquid solution. Donors who are at higher risk of harboring these viruses can be identified and deferred. That means we won't use their plasma. We won't let them donate into the pool. And tests of plasma can be used to identify these risks or can be developed to, if we didn't have them yet, and then remove those plasma units from being used in fractionating plasma when it was put together in large pools to be made into product. So that's some of what we learned from that experience. We also learned that unknown infectious agents can suddenly appear and be transmitted through blood or blood products. Things that we had never seen before, things that we knew nothing about, can suddenly arise and take us by surprise. <clears throat> what happened was the majority of persons with severe hemophilia became infected with HIV until 1985. Past 1985, that has not been the case. There hasn't been a single transmission. And most of those patients now have gone on to die. Current plasma products, however, marketed in the United States since 1985, have not transmitted hepatitis B or HIV. And that's an important point to make. We learned a lot from that, and we're not going to repeat those mistakes. So the goal of this talk is to describe to you what we do today to make these plasma products safer from those things that we know about and why we think that even if something new and unknown appears, that our processes today um, are very likely to reduce that risk or eliminate that risk. So this slide shows um, the seven steps that I'm going to go through and explain to you what are, what are used today to help us produce safe, safer products. One is donor screening is conducted at low risk centers. There are centers where people go and routinely donate their plasma. The donor is screened by asking certain questions. Um, and I'll go into detail for each of these. But even, even that the individuals are asked questions and tested and so forth, the centers themselves 
have to have a minimal uh, number of donors that come to their center that have a uh, positive test or positive history that makes them at risk. If that number starts to rise, that center is shut down. And we don't take any more plasma from that center until we can find out what's going on. Second, extensive testing of every single plasma donation that's made. And I'll go into the details of what's tested and how. And then the plasma that's donated isn't used right away. It's put on hold. It's kept, frozen, for a period of time. And I'll explain why that is done. When the plasma that has passed all these tests is, is uh, qualified to be used, it's then pooled into large quantities, large vats, 3,000 liters to, to 10,000 liters. And the reason for doing that is economies of scale. Um, it's because it wouldn't be uh, cost effective to, to make it one at a time. This makes it possible because it's a very expensive process to go through. So the pools that are made from which we manufacture the products, the pools are then tested again for these viruses using very sophisticated tests that I'll get into. And then each step in manufacturing and purification of the, the particular clotting factor that we're looking for has specific validated um, virus and prion removal and inactivation steps added in the process. And I'll go through all of what those processes are and why they work and how they work. Every step along the way in the manufacturing is quality controlled. That is, if it has to be at a certain temperature, at a certain pH of acidity or alkalinity, um, or at a certain uh, humidity or whatever, at each step, it's double-checked to make sure that that was the conditions under which it was taken place. That was the temperature for that process, for that step. That was the pH at that step, exactly the way it's supposed to be. That's what quality control is, making sure that it's done the way it's supposed to be done. And then once it's released and every lot that's made undergoes a number of tests to make sure that the final product is the way the final product is supposed to look, supposed to be. It's the, the testing that is supposed to have in it certain things and not have in it other things. Once it's released and used and distributed for use in patients, then we are very diligent in following up on what's called pharmacovigilance and traceability. Pharmacovigilance is the term that's used for drug safety or reporting all the adverse events that come in and tell us that somebody had an adverse event, uh, something unexpected that happened and uh, undesirable that happened when they took the product. That's what pharmacovigilance re refers to. So let me start with donor screening. Some of this I've, I've mentioned in passing. The no donation centers, every donation center is monitored to assure a low rate of positive tests every six months. And if they don't meet that standard, then they're shut down until we can find out why. And this is all companies that manufacture plasma derivatives, not just our company, it's all companies. When a donor comes in to donate plasma, he fills out a questionnaire privately where no one can see what 
answers he's putting on the, on the questionnaire on the sheet. And that's done because sometimes the questions are of a very personal nature. Have you ever had sex with a man? If you're a man, have you ever had sex with a man? Um, very detailed questions about personal behaviors, activities that would put them at risk, ever used uh, injected illegal drugs, for example, um, ever been with a prostitute, and so forth. Things that would put them at risk of, develop, of, of acquiring the viruses that were of con concern to us. Even asked about the time that they spent in Europe, particularly in the United Kingdom, where there was an outbreak of variant uh, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, or a prion disease, that um, uh, we call mad cow disease, because it's sort of crossed over from a disease that very rarely affects cows, but can also affect um, people, that particular variant, and was particularly prevalent in the UK. And also asked about recent and past illnesses, medications they're on, certain medications preclude them from donating, uh, certain past illnesses knock them out of the pool, they can't donate. Um, then the donor has a complete physical exam and the physician looks for certain signs of diseases that would make him not a good donor. Then lastly, the donor is asked privately, is there any reason why we shouldn't use your plasma? And he doesn't have to say why, he doesn't have to give a reason, he doesn't have to say what his personal behaviors are, but if he knows in the heart of his heart that there's something that he done that has put him at risk, he can say, don't use my plasma for going into uh, patients, into fractionation. And it's all done anonymously, so other than the number of his donation, nobody would know which person has said that. Then the plasma that is collected from people that pass all those tests is then tested for viral markers. And by viral markers, I mean, we're, in some tests, we are actually looking for the virus, and I'll explain that. But in other cases, we're looking for blood tests that would tell us that he's been exposed to that virus, a marker in his blood that tells us that. Now, for most viruses, you develop antibodies against that virus when you're infected. And the antibody helps you fight off the virus and gives you immunity from ever getting that virus again. So you get measles once. So you get chickenpox once. So you get any particular strain of a cold virus once, but there's so many strains of cold viruses that you continue to get colds the rest of your life. If you have an antibody, you can't get, get that virus again, and you can't give it to somebody else again. However, the viruses that are of concern to us, potentially blood-borne viruses, the antibodies that we make don't destroy the virus. The virus can live in your bloodstream along with the antibodies, and that's where the problem arises. For those specific viruses, having the antibody means you also have the virus present in your blood. And you could infect someone else. So for those viruses, we just look for the antibody, and if we have the antibody, you're out of the picture. You're no longer a donor. 
And the examples I put at the bottom are HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and a disease called parvovirus B19, which you may not have ever heard of. Um, but in most people get it by the time they're adults. Um, in little children, it causes what's called fifth disease. It's one of the fever rashes that kids get, chicken pox, measles, uh, German measles, and fifth disease. Um, but those viruses can coexist with the antibody. So they are particularly of concern to us. Now what we do is we test for the presence of the virus DNA. As you know, every living organism has DNA and RNA in it. <coughs> um, and there's a test that's been de developed called nucleic acid amplification testing, or NAT testing. And what that does is, if there is the least little bit of DNA from that virus, this multiplies it, amplifies it, multiplies it many times over until it reaches a concentration where we can identify it. <clears throat> we also do the routine antibody test because I said if you have the antibody, you have the virus. But we do both. We look for minuscule amounts of the DNA of that virus through NAT testing, NAT testing. NAT testing is capable of identifying very low plasma levels of the viruses that we are of concern to us. HIV, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV 1 and 2, and parvovirus. And we do this nucle uh, nucleic acid amplification test for all of those viruses. However, we still have a window period uh, that we might miss a person who's really infected, but the amount of virus in their body is so low that even the NAT testing misses it. The window period is that period between the day that they're infected and the day that we can determine that they have the virus in them by all these sophisticated tests. Um, years ago, in the late 80s, early 90s, that window period in many times was three months, four months before we could identify it. Um, we've reduced that a lot, as I'll show you in a second. But any donor whose plasma fails any of these tests is permanently deferred from ever donating blood or plasma again through a national clearinghouse. The Red Cross and all the plasma donation centers communicate with each other. And if anybody ever fails one of these tests, they're forever banned from donating. It's one of the exceptions, I guess, to HIPAA. Um, because the public health is at, at stake here. It's, the risk is too great. I mentioned that we then hold the plasma for a period of time, um, and all donors' first plasma is kept frozen in storage for up to 60 days until that donor comes back and donates again. People don't realize that. But we've got warehouses full of frozen bags of plasma, just waiting for that donor to come back because the donor has to pass all the tests a second time two months later, just in case we missed something the first time. If the donor never comes back, the plasma's thrown away. 
and the reason is just in case. Over the years, these more sensitive tests like NAT testing and more sensitive antibody testing has shortened the window period to, for some of the viruses down to seven days. So we have a big margin here if we can find them after seven to 11 days, but we still wait 60 days for that person to come back and have to pass all the tests again. So here I have uh, recent window periods um, using the serology testing, that is the antibody testing. Serology means the testing for the antibody. And the NAT testing, the nucleic acid amplification testing. The window period, for example, for parvovirus is only seven days. For hepatitis B, it's still about a month, 34 days. Um, and for the others, it's just a matter of a week and a half or a couple of weeks. So that's a marked improvement over what it was in the early 90s, where we'd have to wait three, four months to be able to know for sure. Then the plasma is pooled together for manufacturing, and the plasma pools are tested. And the plasma pools are tested sometimes not the 10,000 liters all in one big vat, but in what are called mini pools of a few hundred donations together. Um, that, because if any of them are positive, we have to throw them all out, okay? Um, <clears throat> and all the plasma pools have to pass this nucleic acid, very sensitive testing for the DNA of the virus. Now, for parvovirus B19, this is something interesting that's different than it is for the others, for the, all the other viruses. For parvovirus B19, um, we must have a certain level of antibody present in addition to um, uh, not, not having a positive NAT test. The NAT test has to be negative, no virus present. But in addition, the antibody titer has to be at, at least 1 to 10,000, meaning that you can dilute the plasma 10,000-fold and you can still find the, the uh, antibody present. That's what a 1 to 10,000 dilution means. And the reason for that is, just in case we missed any live parvovirus and the NAT testing didn't pick it up, there'll be enough antibody there to control it and to inactivate it. That's something that people don't really realize. They think that everything has to be negative. Well, no, there has to be a certain amount of antibody present, even though we know that if the antibody is present, that there could be virus there. That's why some of the further steps take place, which we'll get to. So I mentioned mini pools. Um, if a mini pool happens to fail the test, we can trace it back to an individual donor. And then that donor becomes deferred for the rest forever through that national clearinghouse. 